In the following day, John the Baptist was again standing with his two disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked up and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and remained with him for the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what, Je what John had said and then had followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah. When Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, looking instantly at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He, followed, he found Philip and said to him, Come and follow me. Philip was with Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathaniel, who told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets have wrote about. His name is Jesus, son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, proclaimed Nathaniel, How can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. You can be seated, and our kids are uh, dismissed to Children's Church presently. We're going to uh, shift gears in our uh, God with us uh, theme for for the year, and we're going to begin um, in the specifically the Gospel of uh, of John. Um, where we're going to talk about Jesus with us in a lot of different ways. And so we'll, we'll walk through uh, this gospel. And to, uh, this is telling me that I did something wrong, but we'll see. <laughs> trying new software, trying new technology is always kind of sketchy at first. Um, but we're trying it. Um, let's, let's pray together. God, as we open your word, um, I pray that our hearts have already been opened, um, that your spirit's been active in our, in our coming, in our gathering, in our conversations, in our song, in our prayers, um, that through, uh, through this time, that your spirit would open up uh, even more uh, truth and even more doors uh, in our hearts to, to be um, obedient to you. Um, to not just understand, but to follow uh, and to continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, so help us to be attentive. Um, may, uh, may we be aware of the devil's schemes to try and uh, argue with us in, the, in our insides. Um, may we know the difference between your Holy Spirit's conviction and the accuser's condemnation. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So John... Um, begins his gospel with echoes of creation. I had, um, I had Kathleen read the last 
or toward the last half, but I want to just skate through the first part of this, of this gospel um, because it answers the question, the very important question John wants to answer is, who is Jesus? If this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if this is a retelling of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that, in John's words, that you might believe, who is he? Well, there's lots of things that John uh, calls Jesus in these opening verses. In the beginning was the word. Now the word, words emanate from a person's mouth. They are a part of that person, but they become separate from that person, and they do stuff. And in God's word, what did, how did God create Genesis 1? He, and the Lord said, let there be light. The Lord said, I mean, it was, it was his words that created He formed the animals and man out of the dust of the ground, and so we kind of have this idea of God's big hands down there playing with dirt. I don't know if that was the case or not, but he spoke things into creation, into life, into existence. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's echoing Genesis 1. Jesus is the word. He was with God. Okay, so he's in company with God the Father, but he's also, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, that first verse just kind of blows your mind right away. Is he God or is he with God? Yes. He's both. He's both distinct from the Father, but one with him, in essence, in a relationship. This continues all throughout the Gospels. You'll see this again and again and again. It doesn't get any easier when Jesus starts saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or I and the Father are one, that kind of thing. But it's important to know that the Word of God is God. He is with God. He has at, uh, Skip down to verse 18. Uh, maybe we're more familiar with verse 1 than we are with verse 18. Verse 18 caught me by surprise once again, because John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, maybe you have God, the only begotten, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side. Now, wait a minute. Okay, so no one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So here we have this again. Here's, here's, here's God on his throne. Here's the Father. And here's, this, here's God, the only begotten, right at his side. And they are one. Take a, skate, take a walk through uh, uh, Daniel 7, and you'll see this uh, again in different ways. That's a whole different set of uh, scriptures there. He is creator. Through him everything was made. All things were made through him. Nothing was made that has been made without him, and in him was life. Light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. Maybe your Bible has comprehend or um, overcome. Lights come into the world. Darkness didn't get it. He is called the Christ, or the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One. He's also the Lamb of God. He's called the Son of God. He's called the son of Joseph. He's called the son of man. He's called rabbi, which is teacher. He's called the king of Israel. 
there's lots of different titles and names that different people give to Jesus throughout this entire first part, this entire chapter. He's described in many different ways. And you'll see um, many different people refer to Jesus as the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And Jesus tends to rephrase or reframe and calls himself the Son of Man all the time. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man or the Son of the Human. I'm, I'm a person. But he wasn't just a human. John the baptizer came, witnessing about this light. He came to tell people about the light. And verse 10 says, He, that is Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. So there's the third, for the third time, light comes into the world, darkness doesn't get it. He came to that which was his own, they didn't receive him. The ones that he made did not recognize him. Aaron, you're going to have to advance that to that gospel. It's not letting me do it, turning it off. John 1.14, the word became, what? Flesh, and made his, made his dwelling place. He tabernacled among us. That's the word, he tabernacled. We don't use that term as a verb, but that's what John says, that's what the Greek says. What's a tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was in, back in the Old Testament, they built this tent, and that's where God's presence was. He came and met with Moses. He came and met with Aaron the high priest in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And for Jesus to have tabernacled among us is he is heaven on earth, where heaven and earth meet the God the Father in him, incarnate, walking around. So what do we have so far? We have Jesus is God. He created. He was with God. And he took on flesh and came to be just like us to walk around and, and do stuff here. To be the perfect image of God into the world. The perfect human. So if you were the creator God, if you were the father, if you spoke all these things into existence and you had a desire to make yourself known to your creation. You wanted to introduce your presence, your transcendent eternal self into this time and space, small little place that you made, but very, very important to you. And you knew it needed help and redeemed. You knew you were going to make it all together new. How would you do it? Would you go about um, introducing this perfect human into the world by, I don't know, birthing him to peasants in a backwater town nobody ever heard of or respected? Would you have this, this perfect chosen one raised by uh, people of no importance or no wealth or n- no notoriety? Would you have him introduced into public ministry by kind of a crazy man living out in the desert wearing leather belt and fur and eating locusts and stuff like that? I mean, would you choose that guy to be your first PR man for your earthly ministry? I mean, really, I mean, in their, in their day, it was resident of the, of the prophets. 
it was the perfect way. It wasn't what, what we would choose, likely. Nobody of prominence, but it was the perfect plan. Would you then go about choosing for yourself, if you were to launch this, this kingdom on earth, this heaven on earth phase two kind of business, working toward redeeming the world, would you choose people for, for yourself to launch this movement? Would you choose unschooled ordinary men? Would you choose barely out of their teenagers coming off the work side, blue-collar guys? Would you choose people of politically diverse and even opposing ideologies to be in your inner circle? Would you choose people of questionable character? Would you choose people who you knew at your hour of darkest, your, your darkest hour, you, where you needed them the most, that they would run? Would you choose people like that? That's exactly who Jesus chose, which gives me great comfort because all of us are that. All of us are questionable characters. All of us have weaknesses. All of us are compromised. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose the 12. Even Judas. He didn't choose poorly. He sought the least likely, the weak, so that God's power would be known in them. His, his power would be through them. His spirit lived in them and flow through them so that when Jesus had been killed and resurrected as these disciples of his became apostles and sent to the world to launch this kingdom and his church, people who opposed them would see, wow, what happened to them. They used to be unschooled ordinary men and now they're bold. Now they're powerful. They had been, oh wow, they were with Jesus. Hmm. That's exactly what happened. So, we're to the choosing of the disciples. In verse 35, the next day John, and this is John the Baptist, and he notices Jesus passing by and he gives attention to him. Look, the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples heard him say this, Andrew being one of them, and they follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? This is the NIV. The ESV says, what are you seeking? Which I think is kind of better. What are you seeking? And they just said, where are you going? Where are you staying? We want to spend some time. We want to hang out with you. And so they did. They just had a come and see invitation. They spent the rest of the day with him. I don't know what they talked about. I would have loved to have known what they talked about all day. But it's apparent Jesus began discipling these men by friendship and meals. And the first thing Andrew did was call his brother. We have found the Messiah. It only took Andrew a few hours to figure this out. We have found the one. And then it says, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And we see this play out again. Calling Philip. Like Andrew and Peter, from the town of Bethsaida, he found then Philip, he said, follow me. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about. This is the one. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nathanael's a bit of a skeptic. He's like, can anything good come out of that place? I mean, really, it's not Jerusalem or anything. 
And again, we hear Philip say, come and see. And Nathaniel has an interaction with Jesus that puzzles me. It's, it's a conversation full of, of um, inside knowledge. You don't really know what's going on because what convinces Nathaniel is Jesus said, well, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel's like, wow, you're the king of Israel. And I'm thinking, you saw him under a tree. I mean, I see people under trees all the time. You know, it doesn't convince me of anything. But something, there was something significant about that knowledge, something Jesus could not have known, or something that Nathaniel had made a practice of, of, of having a prayer spot, perhaps. Somebody actually wrote, I mean, centuries ago, the tradition was that, that Nathaniel was, was born under a fig tree. And that was, it was part of his story. And so when Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, it was just one of those mind-blowing moments for Nathaniel. It's, okay, you're freaking me out right now, but you must be the guy. We don't know what the backstory is, but the connection here, the plan. Look where we've come from. We've come from in the beginning to a one-on-one conversation of come and see. In one chapter, we've come from a cosmic event of all creation and heavenly mystical Trinity stuff happening to individual conversations and saying, come and see. Let's spend some time together. This is the plan. Jesus will have plenty of time in front of great crowds of people, but, but he didn't necessarily seek the crowd. The crowd sought him. In fact, sometimes he wanted to avoid the crowd. He didn't altogether like the crowd because the, all they wanted was another miracle or another meal. And he kind of almost chided them one time. He's like, you know, you're, all you're after is another lunch. Really, that's what you want. You want a show. The bread and butter of the movement, the backbone of the church is one-on-one or smaller types of, of conversations and groupings where that kind of relationship, that kind of long-term life transfer can happen. It's not just knowledge that we're putting into another person's head. It's being able to follow Jesus and be obedient to him in ways that can only be observed close up. So the question is, who are you connected to? Who do you know? Who do, who do I know that isn't connected to Jesus? Because did you see the first thing that Andrew did was go get his brother? The first thing that Philip did was go get Nathaniel. It was a reaction. It was just a reflex. I got to tell somebody about this. And the scripture says it's not by ability or power. It's by the spirit, says the Lord. And it's by prayer and the spirit that makes what makes this saving a difference in somebody's life. It's, it's you that say the words. It's you that say the prayer. It's, it's you that make yourself available to serve, but it's the spirit of God calling that person to himself. But you and I are the vessel. 
that that happens. Okay, little thought exercise here. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism? Did anybody go, oh, goody? <laughs> I mean, how, first, by show of hands, what's the first thing you, you saw was a guy on TV with big hair and a microphone? <laughs> okay? Or how about somebody knocking at your door, t- passing out tracts? Evangelism has gotten a really bad rap. It's a great Bible word. It's a wonderful gift. But in our day and age, it's become a way to sell something. And it was never meant for that. I don't know. My skin begins to crawl about thinking about it. it it's all, in, in a lot of ways, and I don't know if you were around in the church movement back in the 80s and stuff, there was a lot of evangelism training that came around, lots of big movements, programs, churches signed on to, and it was a you know, citywide campaign, door-to-door knocking. I'm not saying any of that was bad. It's just a whole different world now. And there, there have been, some churches have this kind of training and have this kind of mindset that you got to seal the deal. You've got to push them into a decision because this is eternity we're talking about here, and that's not wrong. It's just a bad way of, you can't sell Christianity. You can't almost push it like that. I mean, I agree there needs to be a time when a person needs to be led to a point where they're like, okay, yeah, I, this is true and i got to do this. And you better be there when it happens and help them through that door. But we are never to shove them through. I mean, imagine if you, imagine if you were a single guy or a single gal. You know, some of you don't have to imagine because that's, you know, like, oh, yep, that's me, I'm single. Imagine if you were that person, somebody comes knocking on your door and says, you know what, right out there in my car, I have your future spouse <laughs> right here. You don't know her yet, you don't know him yet, you know. I mean, imagine this for you, Casey, this, this guy's this, right out there in that car, there's, there's your husband right out there. And I'll tell you, it's a limited time offer, you've got 30 minutes to interview this guy, and if, if you say no, then you're going to hell. I mean, who would listen to that kind of, of pitch? That, but you, Transfer the, the husband down and put Jesus in, and that's almost exactly what some people do. It's that kind of high-pressure sell, selling pitch where the stakes are high, and if you don't respond, then your soul, well, maybe your soul was already in danger, but now it's even, now it's even more at risk. Because if a person does make a decision under duress, many times it doesn't last. That kind of evangelism doesn't make disciples. For the most part, I really believe it's about, it's about family relationships. It's about people who work together. It's your neighbor. It's someone who knows you. It's someone who trusts you. It's someone you can take to, to, to lunch. Someone you can take to Jesus. Someone you can pray for. Someone you can speak into their life on a regular basis over the long haul, they probably already know you're a Christian. At least they should. I mean, have you ever come across somebody after they've known you for quite a long time and they're like, I didn't know you going to church. Like, oh, dang it. <laughs> you know, I must, have, I must have done something wrong somewhere because I mean, I've known him for five years and they didn't know that that was an important part of me. 
they should have some idea that you're a person of faith. You should be distinct enough that that shines, at least a little. Jesus began with friendship. He invited these two guys over for dinner, and nearly 2,000 years later, close to 2 billion people identify themselves as Christ followers. But the church, the, the church in America isn't... Well, Calvin Miller, in his book, Letters to Young Pastors, he points out that in the year 1900, there were 27 churches per 10,000 people. That's not a lot. But in the year 2000, that number had dropped to 11 churches per 10,000 people. Now, I did a little math. I did a little demographic study. In Neosho County, 16,000 people and over 40 churches. You do the math, that's one church for every 400 people. That's called the Bible Belt. (laughs) You know, you think one church for every 400 people, that almost sounds doable to me, doesn't it? I mean, not every church, not every church is going to handle 400 people, but it certainly is better than one for every 10,000 people or something like that. But this is on the decline. Um, Half of all churches in America didn't add a single person to their membership in the last two years. Every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors forever. And 1,000 new churches are started. From 1990 to the year 2000, for 10 years, the combined membership of Protestant churches declined by 5 million members while the U.S. population increased by 11%. We're going in the wrong direction. According to the Francis Schaeffer Institute for Church Development, about 2.7 million Christians fall into what they've called inactive status every year. They just stop going to church. 2.7 million Christians just unplug from the body of Christ. They'll cite reasons like abuse, disillusionment, neglect. They got busy. They moved. They couldn't find another church. All kinds of things happen, but they weren't connected. I would argue that a lot of them left because they weren't connected. No one discipled them. They weren't involved. The The quote I read was, participation without involvement breeds cynicism. Participation without involvement breeds cynicism. It's like being an armchair quarterback. You can can watch a game all you want and have all kinds of things you would say about it, but you're not involved with it. It's kind of like everybody else trying to ref the game along with Gene, you know. He's involved. Everybody else is not participating. I mean, they're, they're participating, but they're not involved, and they're cynical. <laughs> you call good games. Don't let me get you, don't, don't let me get you there, okay? But you feel it, don't you? You're like, you're not out here. You're not out here on the floor. Come on, give me a break. I'm closer than you are. Um, but participation without involvement in the church can breed a cynicism, too. David Platt, um, another author, he acknowledges uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says there is a cost to discipleship. But he says there is a greater cost for non-discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship is greater than the cost of discipleship. To make disciples, you need to be a disciple. 
And that's not some super class of Christian. That's not some upper echelon. When Jesus called disciples, he just called people to follow him. If, if you're a Christian, you are, according to Scripture, you're a disciple of Jesus. You're a learner. You're a follower of his. The trouble is, when people sign on to Christianity, they sign on to a church, they sign on to a seat, and they sign on to uh, uh, something they go to weekly instead of a life that they've committed themselves to and, uh, and a redemption that they've trusted in. They bought into religion and not into Jesus. They're a follower of a place and a personality instead of the eternal God to whom they owe their, their existence and their eternity. And so we, we have to change the way we think about how we, how we think about church and how we do church in order for us to make disciples, and not only just make disciples, but make disciple-making disciples. Um, I, I'm going to, I know I did this last week, but I have, I feel like a teacher. How many teacher going to hand me out? Can, how do you do this every day, right? Um, yeah, you guys, help me out here. Um, sup with you, I don't know. Yeah, you guys sp- spread out, spread out here. Can you help me out? Dick the back. I know, you're used to handing the paper out to somebody and it. This is, um, this is, I thought this was helpful. And don't let the word radical scare you. Um, even David Platt, when he wrote that book, Radical, um, I think he wrote it, he, he, he titled it that to get people's attention. But really, when you think about what he's talking about, it should be entitled Normal. This really should be titled like Average uh, Christian. Because what he's talking about here is purely what Scripture says and it purely is what the early disciples did. Uh, we, have, we have signed on to, culturally, in America, we've signed on to something a whole lot less. Thank you. Everybody get one? I really hope that you give this some, um, some personal attention. And... and um, not just breeze through this and it's like, oh yeah, I know how to do that. Oh yeah, I've been there and done that. Oh yeah, I can do that. This is, this, is, this is a very well thought out personal, like I said, personal disciple making plan. To be a disciple maker, you need to be a disciple. And part of that is just filling your mind with truth. Being intentional about filling your mind with truth. And absorbing that in such a way that it fuels your affection for God. What you think about is what you love. What you think about is what you love. And what you think about and what you love, you share. Right? I mean, that makes total sense. If you love the chiefs, you're going to talk about the chiefs. And you're going to argue with people who don't like the chiefs. Right, Isaac? I mean, I'm calling people out today. You know, watch, watch out. Um, you're next. How will I share this love that I have with, with the world in my little world? And then how will, how will I show God's love as a member of a church? Maybe these are questions you don't have answers for. I don't know how. How am I going to get involved with, with church and show my love for God that way? How am I going to spread God's glory through all people groups in the world? And how in the world am I going to get to a place where I feel like I can make a disciple 
or make disciple makers among a few people? Well, chances are, if you gave this an honest look and a prayerful search, you might already be able to plug in the things you're already doing into these categories. I give you this not just to say, you ought to be doing more. I give you this to frame your life in ways that maybe you can see. I'm, I am already filling my mind with truth because I, I, I listen to this or I read these things and I try to avoid this over here. I, I'm already sharing my love to my world because I have a habit of either you know talking to my coworkers or I share a meal with uh, so-and-so down the street when I know she's not feeling well. There are things that you already do that, that are described right here. What I'm giving you is a framed reference to say maybe you are on track to grow in, in these things, or maybe you can say, well, you know what? I'm not involved like I think I maybe should. Maybe I need a little open door. Maybe I need a nudge to share the, the love of God that I know as a witness to the world, as involvement in my church, as showing God's glory to the nations, or even that conversation with those two people um, next door or those, those three guys at the break table, this conversation that I know I needed to be having and I've just been putting it off. Because I'm, unaw- I'm unsure and I'm, I'm not confident and I don't think I have all the answers and I've just not been doing it. And one, one of the things that, um, that my friend Blade keeps telling me is all you got to do is, is do it, try it, fail fast, and get up faster. Well, I can fail fast, all right. You know, I can make all kinds of mistakes pretty quickly. Um, it's the getting up part and trying again that might be the, hardest, the harder part. To be a disciple is to follow Christ. It is a much bigger job description than following rules, showing up at a building once a week or so, it's a lot more life than that. I mean, can, if you, imagine if you, if you could, uh, a married couple, and, and the, the wife is, is sad, she's distraught, and she, she feels like their relationship is not going anywhere. She, it, it, it is, it, she just is very discouraged, and she tells her husband about her feelings about their relationship and, her mar- and their marriage, and, and he's like, what are you complaining about? I come home once a week. I give you grocery money. I let you do whatever you want. And you know, what are you griping at me about, lady? You know, I mean, and he, it's, it's that, that, that relationship's in trouble. I, you know, I'm thinking she, she wants a lot more in the way of personal connection. And all he says is, I'm providing for your needs and I'm, I'm in and I'm in and I'm talking to you right now. I, you know, and I'm, but I gotta go. I gotta go to work and I'll see you next week. You know, that's the kind of thing. That's, that's the relationship some people have to Jesus because they think it's church. And there's so much more. This is what we get to do. <laughs> Following Jesus starts Monday morning in big ways. And this is where we come to fill up. This is where we come to regroup. This is where we come to encourage one another. This is where we come to share the body and the blood in this communion time that is 
so important to the corporate health of the church. So if you have a... (laughs) If you have a relationship that resembles the conversation that I just had, you need to take the couple checkup. Commercial time. Um, I've been talking about this for a few weeks, and I actually have five couples that have done it. This last week, five couples took this test, and we're one of them. So four of you out there took this assessment already. Um, And um, it's good for another three weeks and I'll say it's free because it's been paid for. Um, we didn't put a dollar figure on this. We, 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 we talked about it a lot, and we thought, well, if it's, if it's free, then they'll, then they'll not want to finish it because it you know, might take some time. But if we charge for it, then they might think it's more valuable, and they might actually do it, and we just, well, whatever. Okay, they can throw something in the plate if they want. Um, what, what I really would love for you to do is, if you don't have one of these, um, it's... I put all the descriptions in a bunch of emails I sent out. If you didn't get one of those, it's in your church newsletter. If you didn't get a church newsletter, you can go to the Facebook page. I try to put this everywhere, and I'll put this in your hand before you leave. It is, um, it's very insightful um, for, uh, for a married couple to go through and take this. Um, I would highly... Um, I would highly encourage you to, uh, to follow through, not just with taking it, um, but sitting down and talking through it together. You do get your report right away. And so um, there, w- there has been a time where you know, Rhoda and I haven't spent an hour on this, but she didn't make me sit down you know, and uh, talk through this. I'm like, <laughs> um, no, she didn't make me much. It was, you got to be attentive, guys. You got to pay attention because this is important. We, um, that, this assessment will be available online um, until March 3rd, and then we're going to all get together. Everybody's invited to come March 31st in that, that Sunday evening for a wrap-up. Um, I think it's going to build our families. I think it's going to strengthen our marriages. I think it's going to make the church a better place and a more powerful place in our community. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul makes a very audacious um, statement. He says, become imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. That, that's, hmm. How many of us would be confident to say that to anybody? You know what? If you want to know what it is to follow Christ, just watch me, and I'll show you. I'll, you just watch me, I'll do it, and you can do what I do. I think, I think most of us, <laughs> In fact, maybe all of us would be more, much more comfortable saying, "See Jesus, do what He does, do what He says. Don't do what I do, <laughs> do what He says." And that would probably be right, but it's not complete. I mean, how many of you will learn something by watching somebody do it, even watching somebody do it badly? You're watching somebody do something. You're like, "I could do better than that." I mean, I got the idea now. I can do better than you, you know. That's the idea. You learn from somebody's mistakes as much as you learn from what they do well. And this is so, this is so important for kids. I mean, we're, we're living in crazy times. And this is obvious to a lot of people. But there, there are those on the way far fringes that are saying they're going to have a child 
But they're going to let the child grow up and decide if it's a boy or a girl. I mean, that's a thing now. But I don't know if it's any more confusing to have a child and let that child grow up with no real influence, just you can figure out what you want to believe when you grow up. I've heard that from people who ought to know better. Well, if you try to indoctrinate your child and they won't have any choice, yes, they will. <laughs> Absolutely, they will. I've, I've been around long enough. I've seen all kinds of kids leave the faith, grown up in it, being told this is the way, it's, the way it is and this is, this is true. And, and kids grow up and they're like, nope, don't want it, see ya. And I've seen all kinds of kids grow up in a vacuum, a spiritual vacuum, and claim Christ as adults. It's, you're not going to ruin a kid by telling them what you believe and what's important to you and how you love Jesus. Children need to see you as parents and grandparents. They're, you are their primary influencer, spiritually speaking. And yes, they can have a Sunday school teacher. And yes, youth workers can have a huge influence. And yes, these dear people at church they run into and hug can be of great value to their upbringing. So many of us have those people in our minds and our memories. But there's so many stories of kids who have come through even our youth program. And they, they even sometimes make decisions, but they have zero spiritual support at home. And so many of them end in heartbreak because they just leave. We've tried all we can to pour all we can into them. But their dad doesn't think it's important. And so by the time a, a boy reaches 12 or 13 years old, they're like, hmm, youth per leader or dad? Or a mom, whichever. I mean, I'm just saying, parents have a primary role in, in promoting and teaching and in modeling Christ to their kids. And how many of us do it perfectly? Raise your hand. If you've ever done a perfect job modeling Christ to your child. No. 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 The issue is not perfection. The issue is faithfulness. And even humility and repentance. One or three hours a week in a building will have an effect, but it will not carry the weight that it needs to. So making disciples, this does not have to be something additional to your life. This, I mean, you're already looking at oh, huge you know, commitments and schedules and whatever else. You don't have to add anything to your life. You just need to reframe what you're already doing in light of making disciples. You already work. Use your workplace to shine the light of Jesus. Many of you already do. You already eat. How many of you are going planning on eat today? You going to eat today? You already do that. Use eating to the glory of God by showing hospitality, giving meals away, being able to invite someone out for whatever. Make a reason to eat some eat with somebody. And share the love of Christ. We already celebrate things. Anybody have a birthday last year? You have community events. We have, we have stuff going on. Use those as opportunities to share the love of Christ in the spirit of Christ. We already bless people, or we should. And if we were all intentional about blessing at least one person a day with our words or our actions or a gift, what if our prayer was, God, please show me who to bless today? 
And in the, in the midst of all that, um, many of us are just like, I don't need one more thing. But I'm telling you, the old saying is true. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. This can all, all be done by people you already know. It worked with Andrew and, and Philip. And it, it can work with us. You don't need to go looking on, knocking on doors in your neighborhood, people you don't know. You've already got a network of people. Jesus called men who then called their family members and their coworkers and their neighbors. Again, Jesus never said this was just for a, 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 an upper echelon class of Christians that are going to be specially trained. No, he told everybody, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. If we truly believe those words of Jesus and what it takes to do this, it's just doing it. It's just going out. And I I really believe, and um, commercial number two, I really believe that connection groups are going to help us have an environment where these things can happen and encourage one another to take these things seriously. Our, our goal is to, uh, uh, to have a couple more of these connection groups this month with, with people that we want to unleash and make more groups. They're going to be multiplying efforts. And so everybody ought to get a phone call in the next month or so to be invited to be a part of a group. And these are just smaller groups. They meet in homes, not for the purpose of study, although there will be Bible involved. It's for the purpose of what is this, what is this passage saying and how, what can I do about it? What am I going to do about it? How can I live this out in very practical, everyday ways? And how can you help me to, to make it happen? And all the introverts in the room are going, I'm good. I'm all right. I don't need one more gathering of people because, you know, I love you, but I, don't want, I want to go home. You know, I mean, it's going to stretch some of us. It really will. Um, and it will stretch some of our schedules. There might have to be choices made. But at the end of the day, at the end of raising our kids, at the end of, of a year, do I want my calendar to tell me what to do all the time? Or do I want to be able to say, you know what, I'm carving this out because I think that this is crucial to my kid right now. I th- I'm carving this out because I need this community. I need someone to pray for me this week. I, as much as humanly possible, can we make room for this? Because I really believe if we follow through, if we, if we do this at least partially well, that it can make a huge impact on how we do church, how we see our influence in our community and our reach. You're not going to just say, hey, come to a a service and listen to a guy talk. You're going to say, hey, come to my group and meet my friends and we'll have some apple pie and we'll talk about a little scripture. But these are my friends. Come, Come meet my friends. And we'll talk about, you know, some Jesus stuff. Both are okay. The small group is really what's going to make a huge difference. I think faster, more immediate. 
We're going to keep talking about it. We're going to keep praying about it. And we're going to keep talking about how Jesus is with us. Because it's all about him. This isn't about a program. It's not about a a, a time or a place or a, a, a church or a building. It's about him. And as we walk through the Gospel of John, we're going to see who Jesus was with and how he was with them and how he made an impact being close to all these people that nobody wanted anything to do with. So let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, loving us so uh, with abandon, uh, with this reckless kind of love, this not irresponsible, but generous to the point of At this time in our service, we'll prepare our hearts and minds to take communion. It often helps me to focus on the true meaning of communion. With that in mind, I'd like to read you Matthew 29, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with my Father, with you in my Father's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, please give us pure hearts and clear minds in preparation to take communion. Please let these emblems of Jesus' spilt blood and broken body focus our energy and efforts. Let us never forget what Jesus has done for us, and let us always be humbled by it. Amen.